Welcome back to the Poker with Presence podcast. I'm your host, Jason Sue, and today I've got an interview with the one and only Phil Galfon, longtime high stakes poker crusher, owner of the training site and online poker site Run It Once, and just overall great guy and amazing ambassador for the game of poker. I've had now two interactions with Phil in my lifetime, the first of which came in the 2006 main event of the World Series of Poker, which definitely feels like at least two lifetimes ago. It was my first World Series of Poker main event, and what I remember most about that day was feeling a lot of butterflies and anxiety about playing my first World Series. And midway through the day, I got moved over to the feature table where the reigning champion Joe Hashem was playing and got seated directly to Phil's left. And what I remember about the interaction was that it was so easy and natural to just have a normal conversation as two human beings with Phil where I was able to just relax and feel like myself despite the fact that all the lights were on and the cameras were on me and I was hooked up to a microphone. And so I definitely believe that being able to connect with Phil in that way and have that conversation with him while we were playing in the main event definitely helped me to play some of my best poker that day. So coming from that vantage point, it's no surprise to see that Phil went on to become one of the most highly successful and sought after poker coaches in the history of the game. My second interaction with Phil came from this interview for this podcast. So all these years later, it was no surprise to me to see that despite all of his success, all of the things that he's been through and a much different life he lives now where everybody is more demanding of his time, he's still pretty much the same guy, very kind, respectful human being. So I really enjoyed this conversation that I had. And I really had one main goal in mind when I secured this interview which was to ask Phil a bunch of questions and take a different angle that no one else had done with him before. Because Phil has probably given more interviews than anybody else in the poker world, you can probably search and find him talking about his backstory, his origins, all of the ways that he was feeling and experiencing the Galfon Challenge. And so I didn't want to dive into any of those topics, and I wanted to take a fresh angle, which allowed me to remember that many years ago, on a post that he wrote in the 2 plus 2 forums, he mentioned that he had studied and taught improvisation during his college years. And so this is a shared thing that Phil and I both have as I also studied and then eventually taught improvisation. And this activity definitely shaped my life in a big way. So I wanted to ask Phil about a lot of the similarities around improvisation, what they do to connect ideas together in the same way that they can help you in the poker table or just in the game of life. And I think one of Phil's greatest strengths as a poker player is always his ability to adapt on the fly, to recognize dynamics that are occurring faster than his opponents, to put a plan in place to roll with it and accept that this is the reality and move from there. And that is very much a core skill that gets drilled in anytime that you are doing improvisation. So I highly recommend really taking in all of the wisdom and ideas that Phil provides around the concepts of improvisation and how they apply to poker. And if it appeals to you, I highly recommend taking a class sometime in your local area to explore these ideas for yourself. All right, that's all I got for now. Without any further ado, here's my interview with the one and only Phil Galfon. Phil, thanks for coming on the show, man. I'm, I'm super excited for this. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. I'm mm. looking forward to talking to you. 
I dug deep for you because I remembered back to the first well you wrote on two plus two back in, I think it was like Christmas Eve, 2006 or 2007. And I was like, Oh, I remember Phil said he was big into improv in his college days and, and you taught improv as well um, during that time. And so that's something that we have in common because I did a lot of improv starting about 10 years ago, ended up, teaching it myself and it had a profound impact on my life. So I wanted to just kind of have you here and talk a lot about what kind of impact that had in your life and, and kind of how it carries forth in the way that you play poker, the way that you live, kind of just go from there. Okay. Sounds good. Cool. And also like, I would say my biggest agenda, if I had to say is to convince people to try it because I think so many people are scared of improv. They don't really know what it's about. They're scared of getting put on the spot and stuff like that. And so I figure if I can convince poker players that it'll help them make more money, that would probably be a really good start. And then second, if Phil says to try it, maybe they'll be more likely to do it as well. Yeah. All right. Let's see if I, let's see if I think it makes more money. I think we'll probably find out in your questions because I'm actually not sure. I mean, it can't hurt. Mm-hmm. I know that. Cool. So. When I look at your stuff, and I've read so much of what you've written, I've watched your career, I see improvisation everywhere in in the way that you play poker, where you value the ability to adjust to your opponents faster than they can adjust to you. The Galfon Challenge, where you saw that something wasn't working and and you took a break, made made a new choice. And I just see it kind of all through the things that you write all the things, the way that you just pivoted your business recently, running once on the poker site. So yeah, yeah, I'm curious how you kind of, as you tap into that part of your life and all the things that you learned, how do you feel about how it kind of influences you today? With poker, it's so hard to figure out because I started improv and poker at basically the exact same time. I definitely think that, you know, if I look to, I don't know, the way that I, the way that I teach poker compared to, I think the ways you know, several others teach poker is I'm, I'm mostly improvising my videos. I prefer to teach that way. And I think I have probably the confidence to be able to do that. I think one of the main things I got from improv is the confidence to know that you can show up somewhere and start talking and uh, it's going to be okay. Mm. Uh, you're going to figure out what to say. And that was something, you know, I, I got into improv for kind of two reasons. One was that I, I saw a show and then it was fantastic show. And the second was that I definitely considered myself a, a shy person. I mean, I still do. And, um, and consider myself uncomfortable speaking generally, not, not specifically on stage, but speaking in public, speaking to other people. And so I wanted to, to challenge myself and push myself a little bit. And this was kind of when I got into both poker and improv, it was kind of the middle end of my freshman year of college. And so I was in a new place and, um, yeah, anyways, that's why I got into it. And I, I think that one of the main things I did learn is that I am capable of showing up somewhere without a plan of what I'm going to say and, and then can end up saying something that people find interesting. And I think that's, that's like making that realization is actually perhaps more valuable than, than the practice doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I still enjoy the actual practice of doing it from time to time. And yeah, that aspect of like, I'm doing it right now, I'm opening my mouth and I'm not sure where the sentence is going, but I trust that it's going to be okay. And it's going to create some connection and, and we'll find our way. 
And I think personally, for me, as a way of playing poker too, of trusting that, hey, I can show up in a spot and maybe I haven't run the sim or talked about this specifically, but I trust that I can do this at a pretty high level and and know that it's going to be okay, that I can find my way, that I can come up with the thing that I need to come up with. Yeah, exactly. And it carries over into, like you said, poker, it carries over into everyday conversations and it carries over into business, like the example you, you gave as well. One of the things that I like most about improvisation is there's this aspect of, they use the word play a lot, right? It's like, let's, let's play it out. Let's play through it. I had a nice time playing with you today. This is kind of what people say quite often after, after doing improv. And, and I really like that because is a different kind of feeling, right? It's a different mindset from let's grind it out. Let's, let's work, let's try hard and let's just like bear down. Right. And, and I think both are really valuable. Right. And I think that in poker, it's really easy to get kind of trapped into this. Let's just bear down and grind it out and forget that at the end of the day, when you, it's time to play, there's this, a lightness, a feeling of just exploration that is really valuable and beneficial. Yeah. I think that's a great point. And I, and actually, if you even looking at studying, you know, sometimes people will, I think, go into studying with a specific objective or, you know, I'm going to just uh, look at, you know, these flopsy bet spots for two hours, or I, I'm going to do a database analysis and find out which of my opponents are the best to check raise bluff on the flop. I usually go into studying, uh, especially like I, I go into studying with no clear objective and just follow anything that find interesting. So whether it's looking at solvers, I'm, I usually will go in and practice a little bit and then see when I get something wrong, that's surprising to me. And then I'll explore that spot. So kind of follow my curiosity. And the same is true when I do like database analysis, um, statistical analysis of my opponents is I don't have a, a specific agenda. I go in and I, I say, Oh, that looks interesting. Let's explore that further. And, uh, I wouldn't call either of those things playing but the idea of kind of going in with curiosity and an open mind and, and seeing what you come up with without it being a concrete goal or destination, I think, I think works very well. Yeah. And, and I imagine you approach playing your sessions uh, in that same way as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like I'll go into a session with, you know, the, here are some things I need to keep in mind, you know, previous I've, I've been like, I've been too loose on the flop. So let's make sure today to not, to not do that too much, but otherwise, yeah, there's not a specific, overall game plan so much as there is let's figure this out let's, mm-hmm. <laughs> let's have fun and figure out in each individual hand what's going on and you know how my opponents seems to be feeling or adjusting and uh yeah it's it's definitely open-ended i like that way of approaching it because it's kind of like now i'm open to taking what's what's available to me rather than mm-hmm. trying to go in and say i'm just going to do things my way and if it works out it works out and if it doesn't doesn't and and over time I think that it's a cool way to kind of find your own style, right? Yeah. To to find like oh I like doing it this way, and when I try to force it, it quite often just blows up in my face and a lot of money goes down the drain. Yeah, I think people a lot of people don't they don't think of poker in terms of style so much at the, at the highest levels because they're like well just my style is to do what the solver does, but there are styles uh, even still at higher levels and you you get choices. Um, for how you want to play and and how you want to size and and you you get to fit the game to what you're better at and more comfortable with, enjoy more. Yeah, yeah, especially in in big bet poker where 
infinite options, right? Limit, yeah, maybe a little bit different. Yeah. <laughs> but, but big bet poker, yeah, the whole palette is is available to you, right? And and I remember you were one of the first people who started betting really really small in in three bet pots, and and nobody else was doing it. And it's like, oh, now looking back, I can probably say it's oh, it's probably just because you were approaching play from not this method of like, okay, this is always my size when I see bet in a three bet pot, but it's like. Oh, I noticed that my opponent is doing a little bit too much of this. Well, what if I did a little bit of this and, and we just exploited yeah. him a little bit harder and keep pushing up to that line of what we're allowed to get away with before they make an adjustment? Yeah. Yep, exactly. So what would you say is a similarity or a big difference in how you felt when teaching people how to improvise and seeing some of their, like if we called them leaks, uh, I don't, I'm not going to call them leaks <laughs> because that sounds weird um, yeah. for improvisers. But, you know, some of the things that were holding them back from feeling free from really expressing themselves, you know, truly as they are versus working with a poker student who maybe is having trouble breaking free from all the theory and, and trying to getting a little too robotic. You know, it, it occurs to me right now, as you're, as you're asking me that, that I miss that, that kind of teaching, which is more custom teaching hmm. uh, individuals because, you know, teaching improv is teaching a class of whatever, 10, eight people, 10 people. And um, when I teach poker, it's all, I'm making training videos, I'm making courses. And yes, some people ask questions and I can respond to those questions. And, and sometimes their question gives me insight to something that they're thinking about in a way that I think I could help them. But for the most part, I'm just trying to explain how I do things. And in that, you know, trying to explain where I expect they might, or something might not be intuitive to them, but I haven't done any personal coaching in, I mean, 12 years or something. And I actually do miss that because I think it is, it is really fun to see fun is maybe the wrong word. It's rewarding to mm -hmm. see somebody talking about, you know, the way they think through something and see somebody really struggling with something. And, and all you have to do is, is point one or two things out to them and they, and they see it and improve so much. And I think that, I mean, I know I, I saw your, your smile and nod so much that I, like, I, I know that that's the work that you do a lot. And, and uh, yeah, it's really, it's really rewarding. Uh, mm. I don't do that these days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like in, in your business, you know, you're, you're incentivized to plug the big leak as quickly as possible for as many as people as possible at the price point you're offering. And so it just doesn't, jive with that other of like yeah let's just jam and you tell me what you're thinking and i'm gonna listen real closely and tell you what i think and and that was yeah. kind of how it was done at the beginning and now with all the tools we have you know getting people to that baseline of competency and winning is is a much different track than it was before i'd say it's more efficient to do it now but maybe there's something missing to take that final leap to the top of reaching someone's potential of there's been an overfocus on these base layers and nobody's doing that type of stuff at the end anymore. Cause you know, the guys in your position, it's, it's kind of too expensive to do it to, yeah. for you, just your own time and also the edge you'd give up. And, and so the people that have figured that out, there's no incentive to provide that service in the market. Yep. No, I mean, I've never, the, the reason I don't coach is primarily because I would charge to an amount that I don't think is worth it for people. Mm you know, unless I was coaching somebody who's got like a, who's, who's playing bigger than I am. And, um, yeah, I just, I, I don't feel 
I don't try to, but I do miss that, that aspect of it. Yeah. So I wanted to, in my attempt, in my quest to get people to try this beautiful art form that changed yeah. my life. I'm curious what you think are a couple of misconceptions people might have about improvisation and, and why they might scare themselves away from giving it the first go. And, and what are your thoughts about that? Honestly, I think the biggest problem that improv has is it doesn't translate very well to video. There have been some like, you know, TV shows or there's been some improvised uh, improv that's been shared and it has done okay. But for the most part, I think a lot of times people will see improv and, and not be that interested in it because it, it doesn't translate well for whatever mm. reason. I think it doesn't translate well to video. So I think that's a big problem it has overall. And then I think for people who don't want to try it, they think, well, first of all, there's stage fright that, you know, is, is the, is the obvious one. And I, I guess I haven't done, I haven't done, let's say, you know, I haven't acted in a play uh, where it's scripted or something else, but I just imagine and I guess I've done some public speaking, like a, like seminar kind of stuff, not very much, but I just have to imagine that I think that improv is, is actually an easier way to get over stage, right? Because there are no expectations and because <laughs> of the kind of the environment where, you know, if you're, if you're doing improv well with people who do it well, anything you say is, is supported. So if you, you can't say something stupid because then that becomes what the scene is about or what, uh, mm. what it's about. And then it's, it's accepted as, as part of it. So I think it's, it's a very safe place actually, despite that seeming counterintuitive. Um, it's a safe place to, to get experience. Yeah. Speaking in front of people. Mm. Yeah. I like that. And I think that kind of when I thought of when I heard you say that is really, you only have one job in improv and that's really just to be yourself. And, yeah. and to say what kind of pops into your head. And, mm-hmm. and when you do that, it feels amazing. And everybody's like, yeah, that was awesome. And, and it's not about like being funny. I think that's one of the things is people say, well, I'm not that funny or I'm, I wouldn't, I'm not a good actor or I, I can't make people laugh. And, and it's not really about that. It's, it's just about showing up as you. And I think what almost everybody who I know who has done it has said is that like you know you you don't try to be funny we're we're people we're humans everybody's naturally smart and funny in their own way right and yep. and so it's it's about letting that come out and and so when i think about that and how it applies to poker it's like yeah not everybody is you know naturally going to gravitate towards studying with a solver not everybody's naturally going to be great at psychology adjusting people but when you kind of stay open and curious to what your strengths are you can kind of show up as you and, and yeah, you'll learn a lot of the baseline stuff along the way, but then adding your own stuff on top of that is, is where the real fun starts. I think. Yeah. No, I think well said they, yeah, people do assume you need to be funny. And I think that there is a, um, the look, everybody, everybody laughs. Everybody (laughs) has friends that, that they say something to and make their friend laugh. Like people are varying degrees of funny. Uh, sure. If you want to, and you can have an objective, way to look at it perhaps, but, um, yeah, everybody, ha- everybody has a sense of humor of some kind and yeah, the way that improv is structured, I think it kind of just brings it out. And, uh, and the other interesting thing too, so I don't know, like I had experience. So the first class that I took was there was a, so the, the improv company that I 
was with, they started as um, kind of a franchise called Comedy Sports, which is like short form, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of improv games and things like that. And they, in the year after I took my first class, they left and kind of went independent and they did a lot of more long form things. And, and you can end up, you know, doing, you know, we just end up doing like 45 minute story essentially. And it becomes like the, the part that I really loved. I mean, yes, it's good to be funny and it's fun uh, when it's funny, but sometimes it's just a really interesting story and there's, mm. you know, there's character development and there's all of these minds working together to, to weave these, these storylines together in real time. And yeah, it can be very fun and rewarding and interesting both to you and to the audience in, in ways other than, than being funny. Yeah. Quite often you, you get to learn something about yourself, right. That you may not have known was like hidden way down in there, but then as you're doing something, it just kind of pops out of your mouth and, and it's like, Whoa, I didn't know I really feel that way about this. Or I, I didn't know I, I had that belief and, and it's kind of, kind of eye-opening. Yeah, for sure. And I think the, I mean, this is actually, this is a tangent, but I, I think it's such a great experience. Um, it's a bonding experience with uh, your fellow improvisers because it's such a, it's such a tall task sometimes. And sometimes it doesn't work out, but when it does, yeah, it's great. And, uh, and you've done it together. And I, I, I've made a lot of long lasting friendships from, from my years uh, doing improv. Yeah. One thing I learned jumping and diving into the improv community back when I was living in Austin is that it, it, for a lot of people, it is just like the way of life, right? Like all your friends are there, you're hanging out all the time and you see each other all the time and you get to know each other so well and you do these shows together and you really celebrate the wins together and you feel the, the pain together and compared to poker where it's like yeah you have your your circle of friends but when you lose yeah they feel bad for you but you're kind of alone and when you win something huge they're all super happy for you but you're also they can't feel the same joy that you're feeling as well and and so in this way being a poker player with all poker friends does have that kind of deficit of sharing the experience. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. And I definitely had like I in college I essentially, you know, 95% of my friends fell into the category of poker or improv. Mm. Uh, some other uh random, well not I some other good friends that were another 5%, but uh, I don't call them random friends. But yeah, it was it was yeah, there's a lot of contrast there. I think it's a really good combo because you get the competition through the poker and then the money obviously, but then you also get to make sure you're experiencing the laughter and the humor and you can let out a lot of the dark thoughts that come from poker into your, through your improv, right? So I think that's actually a pretty good, pretty good combo. So I've got a list of some concepts that I think are really powerful improvisation concepts and thought we could just kind of spitball about how they kind of carry over to poker. So the biggest one that everyone kind of knows is like, yes, and right. Yes. And so for people that have not heard this phrase, it refers to this idea that when somebody presents you with a reality, uh, you don't deny it. So there's a, I don't know if you ever saw the movie, Don't Think Twice. Did I see that? I need to look it up to see if I saw it. Yeah. It's a, it's a movie about like five or six improviser friends who live in New York City. Oh, I and, never watched it. Oh yeah, you got to check that out. And anyways, like, uh, so an example of like not embodying yes and is in this movie, which I laughed so hard in the theater when this happened is because somebody's teaching a beginner improv class and the first person says, here, I, I got you a fish. And then the other person says, that's not a fish. That's a piano. You're stupid. <laughs> so, yeah. Yep. 
Yeah. Yeah. And is the, I mean, it's kind of, that's the concept I was talking about with, you know, when you get up there, no matter what you say, it becomes reality because, Mm. you know, the people around you will, will yes and you and make something great out of it. I think in poker, it's really about just accepting your reality at all different points. So whether it's, you know, the river is exactly what you didn't want it to be. Well, it is, you can't change it. You can't fight it. You can't reject it. Here you are. So you have to do do with that what you will. And the same is true uh, from a career perspective in terms of whether it's a downswing or this game that I like was my bread and butter is no longer available or, you know, it's changed, whatever the case may be. You just have to, you have to roll with it. And um, that's what comes to mind for me in poker. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. I, I remember I was scrolling through your tweets recently and I saw you wrote one about like, you know, your bankroll is your bankroll and, and, you know, you can always adjust and play the appropriate game for your current bankroll. You don't need to identify yourself that, okay, I'm this player. And so I'm just going to keep playing this game. No, when your bankroll moves down, you can move down too and feel okay about it and just take the steps. Right. And, and I think people have this issue also around like quitting. They can't admit the game is not as good anymore as it was three hours ago, just because they're stuck or, or that their own level has, decreased and i think deep down you can feel it but you try to kind of overpower and say no it's it's fine it's fine and, and you're not really accepting the reality yeah i think that's definitely the case for a lot of people so characters is is something you wrote about in your j-man 28 well then and about how you wrote that you think you can read players above average and adjust to your opponent's faster than they can adjust to you because one of the skills you learned in improvisation is kind of the ability to play characters and, and get into their heads and understand the backstory and understand their motivations. So I uh, would love to hear more thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, in improv, like that was kind of one of my favorite things to dive into. And um, so in the kind of the long form stuff we would do, you generally, like I said, like 45 minutes, you would have time off stage because there would be, it would be, you know, whatever, eight people doing a 45 minute, essentially, you know, play. And so you'd have time off stage. And I, I remember that I would always love to, when I was off stage, think about, okay, well, what have I learned about my character? And what is, what does this character care about? What does this character really want? And what does this character fear? And that would kind of drive the story for me a lot. And I, I find that in poker, I, I don't know if I was attracted to that for one, I mean, it just kind of happened that I was I found that kind of the most interesting and, and fun part to to play around with. I still, I mean, to this day, I think that's the my biggest strength as a poker player. And I think that in my in my heads up matches, you know, the the results aren't always don't always perfectly show this, but I definitely have a period at the beginning where I'm not playing as well because what happens later is I I kind of build a profile in my head of my opponents and I start to really understand. I believe, you know, start to really understand what drives them in poker, whether it's like, not obviously their, their goals and ambitions in life, but what situations they're uncomfortable with, what situations, like what types of plays they really like to make. Yeah. And so it is, I mean, obviously you look for patterns as well, but it's more than patterns. I think when I get a real understanding, it's not just like this guy C-bets to turn too much. It's okay. This guy's afraid of, you know, putting in money too thinly on a flush board because like, he really doesn't like value cutting or whatever, whatever. So I really like to, once I've played with somebody for a long time, get a feel for, yeah, what, what, what they really like to do and what they really don't like to do. 
and it helps me hand read so much better because they take an action and I say, well, I, I know he doesn't like to do that with this type of hand. And obviously sometimes I'm going to be wrong. I'm not building a perfect profile in my head, but the key is to be, to be right more often than not. And to also remember that, uh, you know, let's say this profile I built in my head that I'm pretty confident in, um, you know, those reads don't override a very clear decision in theory, um, yeah. when you're playing somebody good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, you're, it's almost like, especially if you're playing heads up, right. You're, you're really like getting to know them intimately, not just poker wise, but their, their personality, like whether they're more aggressive person by nature or super competitive or more empathic, right. Of a, of a human being. And you, and you start to understand them them deeply and then you can have these insights that have nothing to do with one of those things but it's like the the pieces just kind of form the picture yep exactly well said heads up heads up is fun right i miss now now that i'm talking about that i miss playing heads up. it's my favorite by far it's so fun so one of the things you wrote i'm gonna i'm gonna quote you here uh you said when it comes to hand reading, the best general tip i can give on the subject is there's always a reason everyone bets the size that they do or at the speed that they do, often as big as they want you to do something, either consciously or subconsciously, try to figure out what they want you to do, then don't do it. So, uh, you know, that's that's pretty clear, simple. Is it is it too clear and simple for, for this day and age? A little bit, yeah. That was, I mean, so that must have been like, uh, yeah, 2000, early or whatever, 2006, 2007, 2008. I mean, I, I think it's, it's mostly true. I think the problem is now the, you know, people used to, bet a certain size because they didn't want to face a bigger bet or bet a certain size because they wanted you to fold or whatever the case may be. Now people bet a certain size because they know that that's a solver accepted size for, you know, the type of hand they have or for the spot. And so, you know, something you can definitely get yourself in trouble. And actually that's something you can get yourself in trouble a lot with. And I, I did this in some of my earlier matches where I was thinking like, I'll just give an example of, you know, it seems like in these spots on the river, when it looks like I'm capped. They bet big with hands that they like generally don't want me to raise, but sometimes they'll bet small with hands that do want me to raise. Anyways, what I realized later, like sometimes I would make reads like that in game and then be wrong. And I'm like, oh, I guess my read's wrong. But actually I found out later it wasn't necessarily wrong. It was just that there are some spots where they have a small size only or some spots where they have a big size only because of the way the board ran out in the action. And so it's, yeah, it's dangerous when you're, that, that's just a cautionary tale for there are these patterns and you can figure it out still somewhat, but because of theory, not all spots are created equal. And mm. we don't know, it takes a really long time to figure out that, you know, this opponent you're playing in a spot where whatever the turn uh, flushes the nuts on the turn and you check back and the river pairs the board, they only have a small sizing. It takes a lot of samples before you figure that out. But yeah, I think it's true to an extent, but the, when you're playing against sophisticated players, their reasoning is so much more sophisticated and uh, and structured that it's difficult to, to figure that out. I still think it very much applies to you know low stakes and micro stakes and and you know most tournament fields where you encounter a lot of players who don't have a who don't have a clear sizing plan and don't have a you know a clear strategy and they in that moment are making decisions because of they want something to happen. And I think it's true that it's, sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it's it's subconscious. And uh, if you can figure that out, you can, you can get a big edge. Yeah. Sometimes the reason why they're doing it is because it's balanced. <laughs> yeah. And then when you find that out, none of that applies anymore. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. So I think one, one real big strength of kind of being in the field of just showing up and not knowing what's going to happen and being totally okay with it is you understand storytelling pretty well. And I experience you as a, as a really great storyteller, the way that you write your stuff, the way that you, you kind of leave the, the big punchline to the mm-hmm. end. Cut off. I, I like the little twist at the end. Uh, I'll go on a tangent. I remember when you decided to start the online poker site and you listed, you're like, these are the 15 reasons why online poker is brutal to start a site and then list them all, list them all. And then you said, and I'll, I'm going to do my best. And everybody's like, oh my God. <laughs> and then, yeah. uh, same deal with uh, Galphon Challenge when you're buried and then you're like, okay, yeah, I thought about all the reasons why I can't keep going, but I don't want to stop. And then everybody's like, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, storytelling, right? Like recognizing the arc of things, recognizing the flow of things to deliver that punch for like maximum impact when it really is going to hit hardest making sure that the whole thing makes sense and the details tie together, right? And telling that story in a way that works. Yeah, I think storytelling, I mean, I, I love storytelling and I think that, I guess I should say I love stories. Um, mm. I guess I, I like storytelling too, but uh, I think it it has always applied to poker. And again, less so in 2022 than in whatever, 2008, mm-hmm. but you still have to tell a story that makes sense with the way you're playing your hand. and. Um, you can still spot inconsistencies in other people's stories. And, and again, even, even today, I mean, I, th- I think it's harder today, but even today, that's where the biggest edges come from is when somebody's story doesn't make sense because they haven't, they haven't thought it through enough, I guess. Yeah. I'm curious. You've obviously got a lot of data on, on where the leaks are coming from in this regard. What do you think is, is kind of the, the root cause of that? They haven't thought it through and they just start doing a thing and, and they can't tie it all together. I think what it is, honestly, is that some spots are too complex for us to figure out in 30 seconds. So there'll be situations where, you know, you get like you're on the river and the hand, the board has run out in such a way that you end up trying to represent a hand that in that 30 seconds, you didn't realize that you wouldn't have played that way on the flop. Like it just mm-hmm. takes, and, and I think that, you know, top players are all capable of not making that mistake if they have five minutes. But when you have 30 seconds, if you're not focused and if the spot is complex enough, which there, there are a lot of spots that get very complex. Yeah. It's just sometimes we're not capable of, of making it make sense. Cause we just, I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of this too. Everybody, course, everybody yeah. makes mistakes, but I definitely think there are spots even in the highest stakes matches where people are just 90% value or 70% bluffs in a specific spot because they just didn't figure it out in time, essentially. Yeah. And, and then that's, that's kind of why as you get to know somebody more deeply, you get to pick up on more of these tendencies. And I think that, you know, if we look at these heads up challenges and, and kind of the arc that you follow around, yeah, you're, you're kind of feeling it out in the beginning and maybe giving up some EV because you're kind of adopting this longer term approach of like, I just want to really understand them. A lot of people would kind of not be able to last through that phase, right? And so, so you, it's, is it a thing where you trust and done this long enough? And it's like, I, I just trust that this is how I do it. And most of the time it works out. Honestly, I think that what, I think what happens is that I, I really enjoy the process of trying to figure them out. And I think what happens is I'm, I make assumptions kind of early in the match. And so I'm already trying to take advantage of perceived leaks 
but what happens is early in the match, you know, half of them are wrong. Like there's, I see something where there's nothing there and, or, you know, I do know that I'm going into the, like I, I make these reads with less confidence, so I don't make as drastic of adjustments, but I am already trying to do it right away. And I think, frankly, I found out that it, it usually takes me longer than I think it does in, in the moments to the point where I really understand them at the right level. Yeah, that's, I think that's definitely something that works out really well in business too, right? You test something, see if it works and quite often it doesn't. And then you do something else. Whereas a lot of people who I see trying to, you know, make a go of it in business, they, they get a little bit paralyzed of needing everything, needing to know how it's going to work out before they, they try something. And as well, I think way too many people who have a lot to offer in terms of their passion and their gifts end up not doing anything because they kind of paralyze themselves without being willing to just like try it and fail, try it and fail. And we'll just adapt from there. It's scary to fail. And it's scary to, I mean, the thing in poker because I suffer from this in business a little bit too. In poker, I've played for so long and I've proven to myself that I can do this for so much that I, I'm, I'm willing to go out on a limb and say, you know what, this is not what a solver says to do. This is not what people are advising me to do. Um, I just think I should do this. Let's try it. In business, it's a lot more scary because you know, I have no business education. I'm not, I mean, at this point, I've run a business for a long time, but I don't, still don't consider myself an experienced businessman. And there are all these like, you know, best practices that businesses use. Um, and so the idea of going out on a limb and trying something that you've never seen done before is scary. And I can see in business, like, I mean, the run ones training model was exactly the same for seven years until we started to add courses as well. And I mean, we haven't changed, like we haven't changed that much. And it's because people have liked it and it's what the industry was doing before. But yeah, I think that I would have, and still probably would benefit from just trying things out that haven't been done mm-hmm. and being okay with the potential for them to, to not work out because like you said, you, you learn from the experience and, mm-hmm. and maybe you like, maybe you introduce a completely new product that has never been heard of before and it doesn't work out because people don't, it doesn't help people enough or it's hard to sell people on the idea, whatever the case may be, but maybe you tweak one or two things and then fix that problem based on user feedback. So I think that, yeah, there's a, it's kind of a paralyzing fear of trying something new when you're not an expert uh, (laughs) field that you're doing it in. Mm. It's funny because the word, the term expert is so subjective, right? Like I'm sure plenty of people would consider you an expert in business, given that runner ones have been profitable since day one for over a decade. (laughs) Yeah. I don't consider. <laughs> what are some of the things that you tell yourself when you're when you're like talking yourself down from these ideas? What are some of the examples of thoughts that, that kind of go through? That's a good question. So usually, usually there's a feeling first that like you know an anxiety and a a fear, and so I kind of try to. I would say I more attempt to talk myself up and see if it works. Mm-hmm. So. I have an idea now about something uh, for anyone's training that 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 I won't get into detail on. But yeah. you know, my first thought is like, well, what if we add this and it takes a ton of work and doesn't make a difference? Or what if we add this and it takes a ton of work and then actually harms our core business, which has been successful for so long? But yeah, that's that's I think where I start with. Um, you know, you start with what could go wrong, and um, it's important to also think about what could go right. But then mm-hmm. the the challenging thing with 
you always want, like, I always have an urge to like, okay, well, let's try to, let's see how I could predict whether or not this would work out well. And there's often not really a, a way to do so. And I think what's important, though, I don't think I've done a great job of this. I think what's important is not asking yourself so much, are people going to buy this? Or is this going to work out well? You should ask yourself, is this going to help customers? Because if it's going to help them, then like if you're confident that a new product is going to be more helpful for them, then it's probably going to work. Or it's not going to work because you got the pricing wrong or you've got the marketing wrong or something, but then it, then you can fix that and then, it, then it'll work. So I think coming at it from a place of, yeah, not trying to guess consumer behavior so much as trying to guess the value, like figure out the value of your product. That's a way to overcome that. Sounds very similar to the process of being in a tough spot playing poker and not sure, but oh, I'm just going to, you know, try and be as fundamentally sound as I can and trust that it's going to work out as often yeah. as possible. Maybe not this time. It's it's yeah. funny as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, this anxiety and fear that you feel in business and, you know, you still have it in poker. I assume when certain spots come up, but you, you trust yourself in poker to, to just like, okay, well, I can, that's probably going to be fine. Right. But at some point in your poker journey, you were on at the identical point where you are in business, where it's like the anxiety and the fear comes up and you, and you try to go through it and you don't always quite get there. And so it's just like, it's kind of the same mechanism. Just, we just play it out in different phases of life for as long as we live for those of us who are interested in these things. Yeah, no, for sure. And in poker, it was just, you know, you have these ideas, you're not sure if they're going to work out. So, and you don't have enough confidence. And so you try them a little bit of them, you know, you dip your toe and then, yeah, I think it, you know, over time you gain more confidence. I would definitely, I think of myself as somebody who has whatever, more than average levels of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the, yeah, just, I mean, I've been playing poker for, I don't know, like almost uh, 18 years or something, 18, 19 years. Yeah. Within that domain, I've, I've achieved a high level of confidence that such that I can overcome, you know, most of that. What advice would you give to somebody who's done well at poker and, and is interested in branching and, and wants to, wants to find that alternative income or, or just a new passion? It's easy to get into whatever and focus on, you know, things that you're being told. So I start to think of like, so I launched a YouTube channel, whatever, a year ago or less. Um, and it's easy when you do that to think about like, oh, well, these kind of, you know, and it is important at times to think about like, oh, people care about thumbnails and they care about, you know, topics that are uh, clickbaity and things like that. But I think it's important to think about what do I enjoy doing and what do I think I can do that adds value? And, you know, I, I don't know, coming from like the, the YouTube example, I like the, the videos that I make are more educational and they're not uh, flashy in any way. And I mean, I think, I mean, I'm not a success story on YouTube. I'm, growing very slowly, but I realized I, I just couldn't be somebody I'm not or do something that I'm not good at. Like I'm not, I'm not good at that. So why it's not me and I don't enjoy doing it. So yeah, I think that branching out somewhere. Yeah. Find some, like a lot of people will ask others, you know, what, what should I do? Oh, Hey, like within poker is an easier example. Hey, what, what games are the best to like, should I play MTTs or cash? Where's more money? Um, and that's not the right way to approach it. It's you know, what do I like doing? What suits my skills? Well, yeah, that applies outside of poker to, you know, do you have an idea for a product? And are you like, what, what do you think this will really help people? What's your experience? And, um, 
kind of expertise there that such that you can have confidence that you're right about that. And then obviously what experience do you need around you to, to accomplish that? And then are you putting yourself in a position where your role in building that product is one that you enjoy and, and uh, can stay passionate about rather than just grinding it out and having to do things that, that you don't enjoy doing? Yeah. I think that when you, when you do it that way, you show up more as you, right. And then people become invested in you and support it. Whereas people, I think people can tell when you're miserable and you're doing something that you don't like, and you're just kind of, you know, that's why people always hate on the live regs who like aren't talking and aren't having a good time and just look miserable. Right. It's because we're humans and we don't like being around that. So, and, and we also don't like buying stuff from people who are, kind of showing up in that way. So yeah, I like that a lot. Do you still consider yourself uh, a lazy person? You know, I don't. Um, <laughs> All right. I did for a very long time. Yeah. I think it wasn't until starting a business that I didn't feel that way anymore. Um, I mean, I think basically I have gotten better at facing the, like what I'd call motivation challenges that I faced. So I, I think that my issue was that early in life, a lot of things came easy to me. I didn't have to try. And that happened even in poker for a long time. And so I never built, built habits that uh, were good habits, but I, I still think that there are certainly people who are better than me, like much better than me at looking into solvers and, and learning things from like putting in hours and hours of study. Like I, I put in less study than my opponents for the most part, but I think I've gotten good at learning the types of study that I enjoy doing, doing it when I am motivated to do so and finding that motivation frequently enough. And I think maybe one thing that's helped is that now that I have, I mean, essentially two businesses and I'm a poker player, if I'm getting bored of something, I go do something else. <laughs> um, I have more to work on than I can think of. And so, yeah, I still don't think I'm fantastic at motivating myself to do things that I hate doing, but I think I figured out how to find a lot of productive things that I can do that I do enjoy doing. Hmm. I love it. Yeah. Just uh, if that's the roadblock, just get rid of that stuff and, and only surround yourself with, with those things that kind of light you up and let you do you love it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, not everybody has that luxury all the time and I didn't always, but I, I do think it's part of it's is figuring out, just finding out what you love and finding out what, hmm. what you can do for hours on end. Hmm. Yeah. And, and if you're in something that you're not completely in love with, there's, there's always something apart within it that I think that you can find that kind of you relate to a little bit more and you can kind of focus on that in the, in the meantime, I think. All right. So I'm just going to throw this last quote out because I loved it when I read it 15 years ago. I still love it today. Every time it's your turn, you have the chance to make the perfect play. I want to thank you for writing that because that made a difference in my life. So thank you. You're very welcome. Yeah, I still believe that. And, I, and it kind of, it came from a place of, you know, there are so many emotions that, that can swirl around at the poker table, uh, as I know, you know, and it's so easy to be in a turn spot and hope that something happens or be upset that this turn hits uh, or be afraid that something's going to happen or be upset that you made a bad flop decision or that they called your your flop raise or whatever the case may be. But hey, now you're here. Man, it's an opportunity to do the best that you can right now. It's a better way to approach it. 
Well, um, that's all, that's all I got for you today. I, I really appreciate uh, you giving me your time. I know how busy a guy you are and how many people are asking for your time. So thank you so much for coming on and yeah, best of luck to you and all of your endeavors. You're very welcome. I enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for your patience because I <laughs> talking about doing this for a while. Thanks again to our guest today, Phil Galfon, for sharing his insights and wisdom on the world of poker, emotions, improvisation, and everything and everything else that we discussed here today. Phil's imprints on the world of poker are everywhere. He was the first person that I remember who specifically wrote about understanding the expected value versus somebody's range as opposed to a specific hand. He was the first person to put a lot of mental game concepts and performance concepts into words that were easy to understand that really related to me. So to be able to pick his brain and reconnect after all these years really meant a lot to me as somebody who has spent my entire adult life in poker. So this was a particularly enjoyable conversation for me to have and to share with all of you today. If any of you are out there are looking to improve your poker game in any way whatsoever, highly recommend checking out his Run It Once poker training site, which I have used many, many times over the years and always come away with better insights on how to play any type of poker game, whether it's No Limit Hold'em, Pot Limit Omaha, mixed games, tournaments, you name it. You can learn anything and everything on that Run It Once poker site. And Phil himself has been working really hard on a Pot Limit Omaha course that is called This Is PLO. So if you're interested in learning from the master, one of the greatest teachers in the history of poker, be sure to check out Phil Gaffond over at Run It Once. All right, that's it for the show today. If you enjoyed this podcast and you want to subscribe to get more episodes, be sure to check it out over at pokerwithpresence.com. Thanks again for listening. Take care, and we'll see you on the next one.